Welcome to the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. A podcast where an oldish man talks at a measured volume about music. And now, your host, Roger Strip. Hello again, and welcome to episode six of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. I'm Roger Stroop. This week, I bring you the first installment of a recurring series of shows that I'm calling Tales from the Bargain Bin. It's about artists and records that companies invested a lot of time, money, and hype into, with the expectation of big hits and lots of sales. But for whatever reason, they ended up flopping and bound for the discount section of the record stores. What made people think these bombs were going to be blockbusters? What went wrong? And what happened to the people involved afterwards? For my first tale from the bargain bin, I'm going to look at a group that was formed in order to capitalize on the renewed popularity of a group from two decades earlier. It was believed that the formula that created the the original group would result in the same multimedia success for a new quartet of random young men. And that belief led to a search, which led to a band, an album, and a TV show. The name of all three of these things was The New Monkeys. Yes, someone believed that all you had to do was slap the word new onto the name of the moniker that made stars of Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, and the world would show the same amount of love to Marty, Larry, Dino, and Jared. Obviously, that didn't happen. But why did someone think it was a good idea to try? The story begins, of course, with the original Monkeys. The Monkees came to be when, an, when up-and-coming TV producers Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, inspired by the Beatles' successful film A Hard Day's Night, had the idea of creating a comedy series about the adventures of a rock group. They sold their idea to a studio, and a pilot was written. The next step was finding a band. At first, the show was offered to an already existing and successful band, The Love and Spoonful. But singer John Sebastian did not want to give up publishing rights to his songs, so instead the producers held an open audition which attracted over 400 actors and musicians, including such future notable names as Stephen Stills, Paul Williams, and Harry Nilsson. Out of that pool of talent, the four young men selected were Mickey Dolenz, the son of a character actor who'd been on TV himself as a child in the 50s on a show called Circus Boy, Davy Jones, an Englishman who had moved to America when he and the rest of the cast of the musical Oliver moved from London's West End to Broadway, Michael Nesmith, a former member of the Air Force whose mother invented liquid paper correction fluid, and Peter Sork, a veteran of the folk music scene in New York's Greenwich Village. The four were given distinct personalities and placed in madcap situations that that involved slapstick and wordplay, and episodes also included multiple set pieces soundtracked by the band's songs. The show debuted in September of 1966 and lasted two years and 58 episodes. As a band, they were even more successful, scoring four number one albums and three number one singles. After the cancellation of the show in 1968, the group, who were now playing on and writing their songs instead of relying mainly on professional songwriters and session musicians, continued recording, and they they made a movie called Head, which was co-written by a then-obscure actor named Jack Nicholson. The film flopped, as did other subsequent music and TV projects, and by the end of 1970, the band had broken up. But 16 years later, the group experienced a surprising revival. To mark the 20th anniversary of the show's debut, 
MTV aired a marathon of all the Monkees episodes in March of 1986. This was fitting, as not only were the musical segments of the show clear precursors to music videos, but the inspiration for MTV was a show called Pop Clips that was created by none other than Mike Nesmith. The marathon drew big ratings, so the channel began regularly airing the show, which, pers which persuaded Mickey, Davey, and Peter to go back on the road. Mike wasn't interested. The tour was very successful, and the group also released a new Greatest Hits album, which included songs featuring Mickey and Peter. One of these songs, That Was Then, This Is Now, reached the top 20 in the U.S. The group was set to release a new album in 1987, and it was expected to get major support from MTV. However, in early, early in 1987, MTV suddenly stopped airing Monkey's reruns. There's some speculation that this was retaliation for the group being unable to play the channel's Super Bowl party. But whatever the reason, the network also refused to play the videos from the group's new album, Pool It, which probably contributed to both the album and its first single stalling in the lower reaches of their respective top 100s. However, the effects of the 1986 Monkees revival weren't limited to just the original band members. Columbia Pictures Television, which owned the rights to the original show, and Steve Blauner, a one-time business partner of Monkees creators Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, decided that they would try to cash in on this new wave of monkey mania by producing a new version of the show with four brand new young men. And so in the summer of 1986, auditions were held to find four guys to transform into the new Monkees. 3,000 hopefuls auditioned for the group. As befitting a second-generation act, among the auditioners were sons of pop stars Bobby Darren, Frankie Avalon, and Donovan. Even one of Michael Nesmith's sons tried out. Another potential new monkey was Michael Boogaloo Shrimp Chambers, who had made his name as a breakdancer in the films Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. He was among the final nine finalists for a spot in the group, but in the end, four, four other guys made the cut. 18-year-old guitarist Larry Saltis was from Ohio. 19-year-old guitarist Jared Chandler was a Los Angeles native. 20-year-old drummer Dino Kovas came from Michigan. And 27-year-old bassist Marty Ross was originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but had re re relocated to Los Angeles with his band The Wigs. Unlike the original Monkees, all four of the new Monkees were experienced musicians, and they were immediately expected to coalesce into a functioning rock band. The group got off to a rocky start. Well, this was long before the days when any update of a nostalgic pop culture property is immediately met with hysterical lamentations about ruined childhoods, there was still a significant backlash from fans of the original Prefab 4, to the point where the group reportedly received death threats. And if the boys expected any kind of an endorsement from the original monkeys, they were soon disabused of that notion. Mickey Dolenz was asked to direct the pilot episode of the new series, but he declined with extreme prejudice. There were also threats of a lawsuit over the ownership of the monkey's name. So by, so by the fall of 1987, when the show and the band's debut album were unleashed upon the world, they had a lot of negativity to overcome. Could they do it? Find out after this break. Hello, I'm Roger Stroop, host of the Old Man Yells at Music podcast. If you like listening to this, I've got good news. It's also a blog. 
I've been writing it for over nine years, looking back at hits from the past from the American, British, and Canadian pop music charts. Right now, I'm mainly covering British charts from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So if you can't learn enough about Cliff Richard, status quo, and singing soccer players, this is the place for you. I also do a Canadian chart recap about once a month. So if you need a Trooper or Kim Mitchell fix, I'm your man. And I'm also in the middle of a project to determine the most unique, interesting, and or just plain weird U.S. Top 40 hit of the 1980s. And to top it all off, it's the place to be to get the links to, to the latest episode of this very podcast before anywhere else. So check it out at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. Why is that the URL? You'll have to go there to find out. That's the Old Man Yells at Music blog at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com. The New Monkeys debuted in syndication in the fall of 1987. I found the pilot online, and here's a summary. The first segment actually documents the real-life search for the group's members. It includes audition footage of some of the cast-offs and of the four chosen ones. Being the 80s, the first thing you notice is the boys' hair. Three of them have variations of the mullet. Marty's is the most understated, with what looks like little or no product involved. Larry, meanwhile, has a full-on blonde bombshell of a mullet, styled in the classic 1983 Duran Duran fashion. And Dino's is the most interesting, as he seems to combine a mullet with a Caucasian version of a high-top fade. Jarrett eschews the mullet, but his hair game is far from conservative, as he opted for a tall, 1950s-style pompadour. Anyway, the segment shows the final group being brought together and then making the rounds of the press and media to promote themselves. The first act ends with the narrator ominously declaring that the group is about to be faced with such grim showbiz realities as agents, studio heads, and laugh tracks. When the second act begins, it's clear that we're now in the realm of, of the scripted show. We're in a crowded office. A caricature of a studio executive raves about the band's potential. Dino is talking to his mother on the phone. Marty is breaking the news to someone that the band already has a drummer. But, and we then cut to a cute dog with a drumstick and a, demo, and a demo tape in its mouth. Jared is being pitched to by a Don King lookalike whose hair is being cut with pruning shears by a Japanese gardener. Jared then approaches Dino to ask who he's talking to, and Dino reveals that the person on the other end isn't actually his mother, just someone named Mom. A laugh track is heard, which both men hear, prompting them to say that the joke wasn't that funny. Marty then opens a closet to reveal an old man with a laugh track machine. Marty tells the man, cut it out. Jared then makes sure we know we're in 1987 by doing his impression of Robin Leach from Lifestyles of, of the Rich and Famous. Then we see Dino on the phone again, and he gets excited when the person on the other end offers the band a place to play together, which the band has yet to actually do amid all their promotional duties and contract signings. The other guys share Dino's excitement, and we see the four of them drive off in a convertible. We then come to a spooky-looking room, where the boys wonder what this place is and who brought them there. Then a hand comes out of a TV and beckons the band, and when they come closer, the TV plays footage of the original monkeys 
performing Last Train to Clarksville. This causes the group to shout, Daddy! in unison. Then the house starts to shake, and Dino looks into a periscope that's there for some reason. He sees a building falling down and declares that there are termites on the rampage. The band seems doomed, and a to-be-continued graphic comes on the screen. The group then asks each other if they want to continue, and they apparently don't because we then cut to another room where the boys are sitting around comfortably. Two of them are home are holding prominently displayed cans of Coca-Cola Classic, as a reminder that the show's production company was owned at the time by Coke. Dino worries that the termites might come back, but Larry says they shouldn't worry about that and instead just take advantage of the chance to finally play together. Cut to the band suddenly with their instruments, performing a pop rock ditty called One of the Boys, sung by Larry. Halfway through the song, the shot come, cuts from the group performing to shots of the band walking around the city and clowning around. The song ends, and so does the segment. I'm not sure if there was more to the episode, but that's all I could find. In my opinion, the pilot isn't very good. The jokes are hacky, the plot is cliched, and the meta gags and fourth wall breaking are executed clumsily. And the song isn't much. The new monkeys themselves do show some charisma, and they seem to have decent chemistry with each other, but the material they're given does them no favors. Apparently, from the premise of the show from this point on was that the band lived in this strange mansion which was shaped like a giant boombox. They not only had a butler, but the house had a built-in diner staffed by a sassy waitress, and it also featured a talking computer named Helen who appeared as a pair of female lips on a black screen. The mansion had many rooms that acted as portals to strange places. There were plots to the episodes, including one involving them wanting to meet the Pope. In another, they are romantically pursued by the sexagenarian singing sisters, the Del Rubio triplets. But there were also non-linear segments and sketches starring the boys. Some of them I found, I found on YouTube. One of them is a cooking segment where Dino finds multiple culinary uses for Larry's face. There's also a recurring segment called The Fables Hound, which consists of two-minute black-and-white short films starring one of the band members. These in particular trade in a more subtle form of humor that is as far from the broad comedy of the pilot as East is from West. And of course there were the musical segments, which pretty much hewed to the formula set by the original Monkey's show. Which brings me to the music, which is what drew me to this topic. The New Monkeys released a self-titled debut album that contained 11 songs. It's not available on streaming services at this time, but a look on eBay reveals four vinyl copies for sale. You can hear the album and see many of the videos on YouTube. I'm not going to go track by track, but instead I'm going to focus on three songs that I feel are good samples of what the album was like. I'll start with the song that serves as, a sh as the show's theme song. It's called Turn It Up. The Monkees theme song is one of the most famous and iconic TV themes of all time. So obviously the theme to a show called The New Monkees is going to be subject to comparison. Whereas Hey Hey Were the Monkees saw the boys introducing themselves. Here we come, walking down the street, and all that. Turn It Up takes the form of an invitation to join the New Monkees' fun, wacky world. Here are some lyrics as sung, by, as sung by Dino. 
Well, the time is close to midnight, but the party's only just begun. Be sure and tell everybody you know to come over and have some fun. Don't tell me I'm crazy. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Everybody's invited, so don't make me wait too long. Turn it up. Let the music thunder and don't turn it down. Turn it up. Whoa, oh, oh, oh. Turn it up. And where the original themes sound reminded me of the Dave Clark Five, Turn It Up made me think of Huey Lewis and the News, peppy corporate guitar rock with synthesizers and horns. And that was an understandable choice by the writers and producers, as Huey Lewis was still in the midst of his big run of hits from his two mid-80s albums and the Back to the Future soundtrack. But there isn't much of an interesting song underneath all that now-dated production. Had the show been a hit, it might have caught on. But absent that, it's just another generic Let's Party song. Turn It Up may have been the theme to the show, but it wasn't the song selected to be the single that would hopefully get them on the radio and drive the kids to the record stores. That honor was given to What I Want. What I Want has more of an edge to it. It's still very produced, but it has more of a power pop sound. I'd compare it to something like Wang Chung or maybe even Heartbeat City era Cars. The lyrics tell the well-worn rock, rock and roll story of a girl walking into a room and making a beeline for the singer and immediately seducing him. Happens all the time. Here's how this specific story goes, as sung by both Larry and Marty. A pool hall dream in a yellow dress. When she walked in, my game was in a mess. She grabbed my cue and sunk my shot. She turned and said, now let's see what you got. What I want, I ain't got. What I want, you can give me. She took me out to a Cadillac. She said, home, James, as we jumped in the back. She took me fast. She took me far. Until this man yelled, what are you doing in my car? I like this one a lot. It's catchy. It makes me dance in my chair. There are some na-na-nas to sing along to. It's very good 80s pop rock. It didn't even crack the Hot 100 but I think it would have done much better if the group didn't have the whole new monkeys baggage. It's the sort of song that I could have imagined making the top 40, peaking somewhere between 28 and 38. And I mean that as a compliment. I have a soft spot for those kind of songs. You remember them, but they weren't so successful that they got to be played out. So when you go back and find them, it's almost like listening to them with fresh ears. The third and final song I'm going to cover is the one I was most familiar with going into this, because it's a cover of a song that was a big hit up here in Canada in 1986. It's Boy Inside the Man, originally written and performed by the Toronto band Tom Cochran and Red Rider. Boy Inside the Man is an almost folky rock song, and the group's version has a quality to it that reminds me of Bob Seger, particularly in the approach that Marty Ross takes to the vocal. And it's a more confessional lyric this time relating the story of a man trying to hang on to his youthful ideals as he ages. Here's the second verse in the chorus. When I turned 25, we were hungry. We had drive. Then I turned much older then, because the boy was lost in pride. When I turned 31, I had lost and I had won. Still, I've kept my dreams alive, because the boy will never die. I dreamed that I saw her standing there. They're running for the boy inside the man. 
I was hit hard by the light so bright it burned. And all at once, I knew she'd understand the boy inside the man. While I prefer the Tom Cochran original, I can't find a lot to dislike in the New Monkeys version. The arrangement is the same, but I can forgive that. When you're trying to sell what's good about a song to an audience that's not familiar with it. And Marty makes his own choices about how to sing it instead of trying to ape Tom Cochran. The only thing I would say is that given, given the lyrical theme, it seems an unusual choice of song to assign to a group containing three members who hadn't yet turned 21, 21, let alone 31. But all in all, they do it justice. I didn't listen to every track all the way through. But my general impression is that it's perfectly fine mainstream rock circa 1987. They were provided with quality production and well-constructed professional songs. With the right promotion, I think it could have been a hit record. What I Want could have been a catchy table setter. Then they could have followed it up with the ballad The Way She Moves, which could have caught on as a vehicle for high school slow dances and radio dedications. Then they could have shown depth by putting out Boy Inside the Man. And for a fourth single... Whatever it takes could have done the trick. This could have propelled the album to at least gold, maybe perhaps even platinum, which would not only have guaranteed a second album, but maybe would have allowed them more say in their musical direction. And from there, who knows? Suffice it to say, though, being wrapped up in a package called The New Monkeys was not the right promotion. The show performed poorly, reportedly being beaten in the ratings in some markets by reruns of the original Monkeys series. Their label didn't do much to, to promote the album, relying instead on the show becoming a hit to drive sales and airplay. 22 episodes were produced, but only 13 aired before the plug was pulled. Warner Brothers Records then gave up on the album, not putting out a second single and dropping the band. After the group disbanded, they continued pursuing show business careers. Marty Ross would reform his old band and later, compo and later began composing music for film and TV. Larry Salsas formed a band called Tower City, who have recently changed their name to Colorvine. Dino Kovas, who now goes by Konstantinos Kovas, has done a lot of work behind the scenes in the film industry, and he recently directed his first feature film, Sleeping Dogs Lie. And Jared Chandler has worked as a military and weapons technical advisor on several major films, including The Peacemaker with George Clooney, Triple X with Vin Diesel, and the recent sequel to Independence Day. In recent years, in response to the emergence of an online fan community, the guys have reunited for several performances and appearances. And in a moment that could fall into the category of better late than never, the group was joined on stage by none other than Mickey Dolenz during a performance at a Los Angeles pub this past February. So here's my assessment of the new monkeys. The idea itself was cynical and mercenary, executed with the mistaken belief that a proven formula and a recognizable brand name would guarantee success. But sometimes the public takes this not as an update of something they embraced before, but rather an attempt to replace something that didn't need replacing. That, I feel, played a large part in the rejection of the New Monkeys. But I can separate the machinery behind the New Monkeys from the four guys who portrayed them. They were young men who were given an opportunity that they couldn't really turn down. They invested fully in doing their part to make it work, and they bonded as a group. And while the venture failed, they did not become bitter and jaded, and they moved on. 
And when they found that what could have been an embarrassing footnote in their lives actually made an impact on some people, they accepted the love and, ref and refused to let the perception of the wider world prevent them from, from owning and celebrating what they did. I think ultimately they're a great story about how we can define success and failure for ourselves. And I think another message to take from them is, even if you end up in the bargain bin, at least you made it, in, at least you made it into the store. And that's more than most people can say. I really enjoyed putting together this episode. I had help in my research from multiple sources, including articles on Yahoo, MeTV.com, Vulture.com, and People.com, as well as the New Monkeys Facebook page and Twitter feed. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend, subscribe, and or leave a review where you found the podcast. You can also leave feedback on the Old Man Yells at Music blog found at bobbyglovescasey.blogspot.com or on my Facebook page and Twitter feed, both of which are at Mr. B. Glovehead. You can also go back and check out the YouTube playlist for the episode, which I link to in the show notes and the blog post for this episode. All lyrics cited are the property of the copyright holders and are quoted for discussion purposes only. No infringement is intended. Next episode, we'll look at the charts again, this time going all the way back to 1973. Until then, thanks again for listening. I'm Roger Stroop, and I want you to want me.